I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no way I'm going to fit this into one episode. This is Encounter 706, The Mothman Prophecies, Part 1. Hello, and first of all, apologies for the delay since the last episode. Uh, For the faithful few who follow from episode to episode, there's been a bit of a gap since Encounter 705. This is mostly due to some non-serious but voice-wrecking health issues and hitting a very busy part of the year and also needing to record this entire episode all over again from scratch due to technical difficulties. Mostly, everything's fine and things will be more regular again going forward. Anyway... We're wrapping up Mothman with a look at John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies. Now, we're going to be doing an entire show on John Keel down the line. So in this episode, we're going to be focusing on the book itself. And if you haven't heard our other podcast episodes about the Mothman, including sort of a review of the Mothman in general and um, an episode about Gray Barker's book, The Silver Bridge, You'll be fine, but I think taken together, all of this will provide a good overview of the early days of the Mothman story, that first decade or so of reporting and speculation. For now, though, let's begin our look at the Mothman prophecies. So, a while back, we looked at the Mothman complex of events through the primary sources of the time, primarily newspaper articles and selections from John Keel's correspondence and notes as he investigated the UFO sightings and Mothman reports in and around Point Pleasant. After writing some articles and giving some speeches on the subject, and writing the foreword to Woody Derenberger's contact ebook, Keel's account of the strange events leading up to the Silver Bridge collapse was published in 1975 as The Mothman Prophecies. Actually, the title was supposed to be Year of the Garuda, the astonishing true story of the Mothman Prophecies. What's a Garuda? We'll get to that. If the Silver Bridge was the Mothman event filtered through Gray Barker's senses of storytelling and mythology and place, then The Mothman Prophecies is the Mothman event as a couple of things. It's a journalism adventure. The story about getting the story is the story in a lot of ways. It's also, more so than Barker's book, a book that places the Mothman events within the much wider context of the paranormal. As such, it ranges beyond the Ohio Valley, as the strangeness follows John Keel back to New York, and he finds incidents with beings like the various men in black surfacing for, you know, further afield than just West Virginia. One thread running through the book is the notion of different perspectives on the same event. Keel starts off the book with this notion in his first chapter, entitled Beelzebub Visits West Virginia. Fingers of lightning tore holes in the black skies as an angry cloudburst drenched the surrealistic landscape. It was 3 a.m. on a cold, wet morning in late November 1967, and the little houses scattered along the dirt road winding through the hills of West Virginia were all dark. Some seemed unoccupied, and in the final stages of decay. Others were unpainted, 
neglected, forlorn. The whole setting was like the opening scene of a grade B horror film from the 1930s. Along the road there came a stranger in a land where strangers were rare and suspect. He walked up to the door of a crumbling farmhouse and hammered. After a long moment, a light blinked on somewhere in the house, and a young woman appeared, drawing a cheap mail-order bathrobe tightly about her. She opened the door a crack, and her sleep-swollen face winced with fear as she stared at the apparition on her doorstep. He was over six feet tall, and dressed entirely in black. He wore a black suit, black tie, black hat, and black overcoat, with impractical black dress shoes covered with mud. His face, barely visible in the darkness, sported a neatly trimmed mustache and goatee. The flashes of lightning behind him added an eerie effect. "'May I use your phone?' he asked in a deep baritone, his voice lacking the familiar West Virginia accent. The girl gulped silently and backed away. "'My husband,' she mumbled. "'Talk to my husband.' She opened the door quickly and backed away into the darkness. Minutes passed. Then she returned, accompanied by a rugged young man hastily buckling his trousers in place. He, too, turned pale at the sight of the stranger. "'We ain't got a phone here,' he grunted through the crack in the door just before he slammed it. The couple retreated, murmuring to themselves, and the tall stranger faded into the night. Beards were a very rare sight in West Virginia in 1967. Men in formal suits and ties were even rarer in those back hills of the Ohio Valley, and bearded, black-garbed strangers on foot in the rain had never been seen there before. In the days that followed, the young couple told their friends about the apparition— Obviously, they concluded, he had been a fearful omen of some sort. Perhaps he had been the devil himself. Three weeks later, those two people were dead, along with the victims of the worst tragedy ever to strike that section of West Virginia. They were driving across the Silver Bridge, which spanned the Ohio River, when it suddenly collapsed. Their friends remembered. They remembered the story of the bearded stranger in the night. It had indeed been a sinister omen, one that confirmed their religious beliefs and superstitions. So a new legend was born. Beelzebub had visited West Virginia on the eve of a terrible tragedy. The infernal being was, of course, Keel himself, stranded with car trouble. Was a new legend born that night? No, probably not. But Keel is demonstrating that in this way, legends could emerge from otherwise straightforward events, and that this is applicable to the wider world of paranormal investigations. He explains it this way. Those of us who somewhat sheepishly spend our time chasing dinosaurs, sea serpents, and little green men in spacesuits are painfully aware that things often are not what they seem, that sincere eyewitnesses can and do grossly misinterpret what they have seen, that many extraordinary events can have disappointingly mundane explanations. For every report I have published in my articles and books, I have shelved maybe 50 others because they had a possible explanation or because I detected problematical details in the witness's story which cast doubt on the validity of a paranormal explanation. Keel continues in these opening chapters by discussing the notion of paranormal hotspots, places where apparitions, ghosts, UFO sightings, all kinds of things, occur with regularity. He also invokes the work of Charles Fort, from whence we get the adjective Fortian, and who deserves an episode of his own down the road, now that I think about it. Keel connects this journey through the wider world of the paranormal at the beginning of the Mothman prophecies to the specific happenings in the Ohio Valley with an overview of mythological winged creatures. In Mexico, there are stories of the Acals, tiny black men endowed with the power of flight who live in caves and kidnap humans. In India, the giant bird known as the Garuda is an important part of the mythology. 
The gods Vishnu and Krishna traveled around the heavens on the back of a great Garuda. North American Indians have extensive legends about the Thunderbird, a huge bird said to carry off children and old people. It was accompanied by loud noises, hums, buzzes, and apparently rumbles from the infrasonic and ultrasonic levels. Known as Piyasa to the Indians of the Dakotas, it was supposed to have terrifying red eyes and a long tail. We are dealing with three types of phenomena in these cases. The first is the winged man. The second is a giant bird, so huge it is a biological impossibility. Third, we have a monstrous demon with red eyes, bat's wings, and a body closely human in form. All three are probably interrelated. He also discusses more recent cases of flying creatures that appeared in newspapers and other accounts over the previous centuries. Century, rather, during the 20th century, including one in 1947 in San Diego, California, where people saw a bluish-white winged object that looked like an airplane carrying red lights, and it left a, a sort of luminous contrail behind it. Um, as it crossed the face of the moon, the witnesses thought it looked like a giant bat, for example. Um, as far back as 1880, Keel talks about um, an Italian astronomer talked about seeing winged bodies in two long parallel lines slowly traveling across the disk of the sun. They looked like large birds or cranes. And if you'll remember from a couple episodes ago when we talked about the newspaper stories about Mothman, one explanation offered for what the Mothman might be is a sandhill crane. So we're seeing some parallels there that Keel doubtlessly read those articles as well. So these opening chapters establish a pattern in the book, interleaving the telling of the West Virginia Mothman story with stories from both the rest of the paranormal world as well as his own experiences investigating the events. Moving into West Virginia, Keel begins with the story of Woody Derenberger and his contact with Indrid Cold. And like Gray Barker's book, uh, this cements the connections in, in many people's minds between the Derenberger story and the Mothman story, even though Derenberger didn't see the Mothman. Now, Keel will go into more detail on various contactee things, but um, he brings in, again, there's more going on here than just the Mothman and just UFO sightings. Keel then goes into some specifics of the case, and we're not going to go into every aspect of the book or, or retell the book, but I wanted to establish those parameters of how Keel structured it. He also uses the book to expound on some of his theories he'd been working on at the time. They're in the late 60s and early 70s. One of these is his idea of the super spectrum, basically the notion that there is a realm of reality that, that pokes through into ours at some points and through which weird things can emerge, everything from flying saucers to Sasquatch. And he ties this theory about the super spectrum into his ideas of UFO or paranormal hotspots. The hotspots are where the super spectrum is poking through. And I'm, I'm, I'm stating this much more sort of simplistically than Keel goes into. He also addresses some of the perennial issues facing the, the UFO or flying saucer community, sort of tying this into Woody Derenberger's story, such as the, the strange words and actions of the aliens that have been met by contactees, specifically their predilection for predictions about a, a grim and dark future. Again and again, psychics and contactees have gathered their family and friends together to sit on a hilltop and wait for the predicted end of the world. 
This charade has been repeated many times in the past 25 years, with UFO contactees preparing for the wonderful space people to descend in their flying saucers and evacuate a chosen few from our doomed planet. The world was supposed to end on December 24, 1967. Occult and UFO groups around the world got the message in every language. A Danish cult actually built a lead-lined bomb shelter and spent the holidays cringing in it, waiting for the big blast. In 1973, a UFO contactee in Wisconsin soberly announced that the comet Kohotek was going to wreck the Earth that Christmas. He was recruiting people to be evacuated by his space friends. Xandark, Orthon, Ashtar, Zeno, Cold, and all their cronies have been leading many of us around by the noses for centuries. First, they convince us of their honesty, reliability, the accuracy of their predictions, and their well-meant intentions. Then they leave us sitting on a hilltop, waiting for the world to blow up. When the world was sparsely populated and signals from the superspectrum were not smothered in so much static from the lower spectrum, men learned to place great faith in these entities and their prophecies. Priests, scholars, and magicians achieved a marvelous understanding of the cosmos and the cosmic forces through astrology, alchemy, and the magical manipulation of matter. But as man followed the angelic dictate, multiply and replenish the earth, our planet began to suffer from psychic pollution. The record on that great phonograph in the sky cracked and stuck in a single groove, single groove, single groove, single Those end-of-the-world scenarios shared by space brothers and sisters took many forms, as we know, ranging from the straight-up, you're-all-doomed proclamations that we might have seen from a Dorothy Martin, to the more oblique, humanity could be doomed if you don't find a path to peace and harmony type of argument that we heard from some of the classic contactees. This also goes to show a bit that The Mothman Prophecies is more than just a book about Mothman. It touches on a wide variety of issues that haunt the paranormal. One of these, and one greatly popularized by the book, is The Men in Black. As we know from several episodes in the archives, the MIB thing emerged in the 1950s, if not earlier, and yeah, we're going to have to have a Maury Island episode at some point. Keel, providing context for the MIB encounters that Mary Heyer and others on the scene experienced, shared MIB stories from elsewhere. One is a story that was shared with him by New York UFO investigator Jennifer Stevens that occurred in February of 1968. One night when my husband Peter and I returned home, we found Jenny, our 15-year-old daughter, in a highly nervous state. She said the phone had been ringing all evening. She would answer it and hear nothing at the other end but heavy breathing. When her boyfriend called, they were interrupted several times by high-pitched beeping noises and were also cut off twice. The next day, the calls continued. Sometimes there would be mechanical sounds, and others, the high-pitched, whining, beeping sound that sent sharp pains through the mastoid bones. Our number is unlisted, so I knew no one could have gotten it out of the phone book or through the operator. We had long since screened all calls through another number in order to avoid cranks. I called the telephone company, and they gave our line a complete check with no findings. The serviceman offered his personal opinion that the line could have been tapped. Several days after our telephone problems began, my husband, who was a building contractor, was in a large downtown Schenectady store inspecting some work and dropped into the snack bar for a cup of coffee. A few moments after he seated himself, a tall, tan, Saturnine-looking man, whom my husband had never seen before, sat down next to him and started a conversation. He began with, There have been people watching the sky every night down by the river in Scotia. Since Peter was one of those people, he was shocked, but kept cool and asked, I beg your pardon? The man proceeded to talk about UFOs. 
Peter tried to draw him out and ask his name and so on. All his questions were either parried or avoided. My husband was beginning to feel a bit uncomfortable when the stranger finally excused himself after noting, people who look for UFOs should be very, very careful. Strange sounds on the telephone appeared in a number of different reports and were part of what Keel himself would experience. Keel decided to look deeper into that trend and some of the sounds that he heard. Today, heavy breathers plague telephone subscribers from coast to coast and are usually assumed to be sex nuts. When I received many such calls in 1967 and 68, I recorded some of them and studied the tapes. The sound is more mechanical or electronic than human, and is probably caused by the introduction of a modulated current into the telephone line. This phenomenon is not isolated to the cities. People in remote towns with a population of only 25 or so also get these calls. The heavy breathing of the sex nut who supposedly masturbates while he listens to a female voice on the line contains certain recordable vocal characteristics which are totally absent in the heavy breathing calls I taped. Played at a slower speed, the recorded breathing was an evenly spaced series of pulses resembling the swishing sound of a phonograph when the needle reaches the end of the record. Heavy breathing would not be so uniform. So, what is Keel suggesting here? Like many things in the Mothman prophecies, Keel is more interested in presenting stories and pieces of the puzzle and laying out potential connections than he is providing definite conclusions. Perhaps the best-remembered MIB story from the book is the encounter that the Christensen family of Wildwood, New Jersey experienced in early 1967. They had seen a strange glowing sphere the previous November and had reported the sighting to the Air Force, which interviewed them. A large man visited, claiming to be from the Missing Heirs Bureau. His appearance and dress were strange. Edward Christensen is six feet two inches tall and heavy set. The stranger towered over him and must have been at least six feet six inches tall. He was also enormously broad and might have weighed at least 300 pounds. He wore a fur Russian-style hat with a black visor on it and a very long black coat that seemed to be made of thin material, too thin for the cold weather. He removed his hat and revealed an unusual head, large and round, while his face seemed angular, pointed. He had black hair, which was closely cropped to his head, as if his head had been shaved and the hair was just growing back again. There was a perfectly round spot on the back of his head, as if that area had recently been shaved. His nose and mouth seemed relatively normal, but his eyes were large, protruding like thyroid eyes, and set wide apart. One eye appeared to have a cast, like a glass eye, and did not move in unison with his companion. He was not wearing a suit jacket. Underneath his thin outer coat, he was wearing a short-sleeved shirt made of a Dacron-like material. His trousers were of a dark material, gray or black, and were a little too short. When he sat down, they rode high up his calves. He wore dark socks and dark shoes with unusually thick rubber soles. There are a couple of other features to, uh, to this story that are, that are great. Uh, his name was Tiny. Um, that's the name he said his friends called him. And he had a wire coming up out of his sock that seemed to, to go into his leg. And he told the family, the Christensen family, that he would need a glass of water in like 10 minutes or something. And as he talked, he got redder and redder and redder and said, I'll have that glass of water now. And he drank it and went back to normal. He asks a bunch of questions, many of them seemingly random. And the next day, the Christensen's receive a phone call saying... Basically, oh, we found the proper heir. He was in California or something like that. 
So these stories of men in black and strange phone calls reflect a paranoia that Keel finds to be growing in the Ohio Valley as he investigates the Mothman case. You may remember from our first Mothman episode, a young lady found a note from an MIB type reading, Be careful, girl, I can get you yet. Keel visited the police, attempting to examine the note so he could compare the handwriting to other evidence he'd received. The cops were suspicious. Despite my sheaf of credentials and press cards, both men were overly suspicious of me and asked me repeatedly if I wasn't from the government. This fear of government agents was already universal in 1967, long before the general breakdown of faith in the government of the 1970s. The UFO enthusiasts had done their job well. Their 20-year campaign against the Air Force had really shut the government off from many UFO reports. Keel then goes into a discussion of the CIA, relating how, when he was traveling in Asia in the 1950s, which you can read about in his book Jadu, which I recommend, he was often under suspicion of being a spy of some sort. He's able to draw some parallels to incidents involving the organization and the phenomenon he experienced while investigating the Mothman. During the recent Watergate debacle, investigating reporters documented the fact that some of the participants were not only longtime CIA agents, but also that these same men had been involved in the abortive Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba in 1961, and some had been present in Dealey Plaza in Dallas on the day President Kennedy was assassinated. It is noteworthy that reporters, editors, and citizens engaged in the investigation of President Kennedy's death suffered harassment and telephone problems identical to those experienced by UFO researchers. So is the CIA behind all of this, Mr. Keel? I cannot accuse the CIA of being the source of the weird incidents outlined here. Rather, the phenomenon is imitative. This paranormal mimicry is difficult for many to understand, but I come across constant examples. Early in January 1973, for instance, a reliable witness in Ohio observed an unusual-looking helicopter, which she was able to describe in detail. When she sketched it for a local UFO enthusiast, he was flabbergasted. He was an aeronautical engineer specializing in helicopters, and he knew the thing she drew was a new secret helicopter that was still on the drawing board. While a hardcore skeptical type might argue that the woman Keel describes here more likely saw an experimental terrestrial craft of some kind rather than a paranormal object that mimicked an experimental craft, while that might be a rational explanation, I think the concept of a phenomenon that absorbs ideas and images and the like and shapes itself to reflect those things is an interesting one. More interesting, perhaps, than the notion of nuts and bolts flying saucers. Next time, we'll conclude our look at the Mothman prophecies with the appearance of Mr. Apple and the climax of the book. And we'll look at a few of the things that have happened to the Mothman mythos since 1975. The Saucer Life Encounter 706 was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius. It is a Chizo Media production. You can explore the archives at saucerlife.com, and you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life anywhere you find podcasts. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>